right, which is good and that has its place. Or you do what I did last year is where you use this theme to preach about something completely different. Like last year, I don't know if you guys remember, our, our Advent series was uh, the silent night before Christmas, remember? And we talked about the intertestamental period, which has nothing to do with the story, but I just used Christmas to talk about something I want to talk about. So like that's kind of like what we do. And so it's really, really hard. The thing is my desire ever since I became a pastor, so years ago when I first started ministry and I first started preaching around the end of the year, my dream and my desire was to preach a sermon or a sermon series on this concept, on the story of Jesus' birth that would express and, and, and show the, the magnitude and the weight of that moment, of that story, right? Like, like a, a, a message where people would step back and just see how huge and massive and important this story is in kind of like life and the cosmos and the universe. And like my, my dream was that at the end of a series or a sermon like that, people's minds would be blown at this super, super familiar story. That's been my dream, right? Where, where people at the end of it are just like, wow, that's crazy. Not, not because of me, not because of the sermon, but the idea of the story of Jesus' birth. Like I wanted to blow our minds because it's huge and it's insanely important and it's thousands and thousands of years in the making and, and there's a time and place to pull out spiritual nuggets but, but its place in the story of the Bible it cannot be understated. It's gigantic and massively important and that's been my dream and I've never been able to do it. Never been able to do, never were able to preach a sermon where I felt like, yeah, that was it. We kind of get it, like how crazy this whole thing is. But this month, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to attempt it. I'm going to attempt to preach a series on this very familiar story that will leave us in wonder of who God is. That leave us in wonder and awe at the majesty of the story of Jesus' birth. And the way we're going to do that, and the way we're going to do that is by focusing on one concept from that verse that I showed you. And I want you guys to try to like, I want you guys to think, wow, what word is he going to focus on? What word are we going to focus on for the next four weeks that will lead us into a place to get our minds blown by this story? I'm going to read that verse to you guys one more time. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What's the word? The word is a very small word in this verse. It's a very familiar word. It's a word that you all know. There's no special meaning behind this word really in this verse. It's a very common word. But this word reflects a hugely important theological and biblical concept that flows throughout the entire scripture. And it is rooted in a phrase that many of you, if you grew up in church, you know it, but you actually don't really know what it means. Like if I ask the question to you later, you're not, I feel like most of us are not really going to know how to answer that. The word that we're going to focus on for the next four weeks that I'm hoping will lead us into a place of just wow, wow, wow at this story is the word son, son. Maybe you guessed it because the series is called A Son is Given. So like maybe that was a, I didn't need to, you know, talk it up so much. You're like, yeah, obviously it's going to be son. 
But yeah, this is a very familiar word. Like, y'all know what that means. But this word and the idea that Jesus is the Son of God is so theologically significant that we cannot, that it would be a mistake not to address this and to tie it in to the story of his birth. If without understanding the concept of the Son, we won't be able to really see how significant the story of his birth really is. Now, I want you to, I wanna, I wanna explain to you why this is interesting. Because probably some of you guys are like, great, this sounds really boring. You know, son of God, okay, like I know that. This sounds like a very theologically rich sermon series. And I'll, I guarantee you, this is a very theologically and biblically rich sermon series, which sometimes is pastor speak for boring sermon series, okay? But it's not. Because here, okay, so you know the phrase, you've probably heard the phrase, if you grew up in church, the phrase, only begotten son. Have you guys heard this before? Yeah. If you spend any time in church and you've heard the verse John 3.16, you know this phrase. And this is probably one of the, the most famous verses in the Bible. And you have this phrase, only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Awesome. Really, really important verse. But... If you look at a couple other verses in the Bible, I want you to notice something interesting. God is saying that Jesus is his son, right? But look what he says in Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to the Pharaoh, this is God talking to Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Odd. I thought Jesus was God's only begotten son, but apparently Israel is also his firstborn. Deuteronomy 32, when God is talking to the Israelite nation, not one person, but a nation, you neglected the rock, who is God, who begot you, and, who, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Interesting. And then in Psalm chapter 2, King David writes this in one of his Psalms, I will surely tell of the Lord, I will surely tell of the, Lord, the, the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you, David, an individual person, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. What? I thought Jesus was God's only begotten son. But we're seeing all these other begotten sons. That's kind of strange. And what's really funny is that uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, as the writer is looking back on Israelite history, listen to what he says about Abraham and Isaac. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. The reason why this is strange is, guess what? Isaac had seven brothers. So, like, the, the idea of an only begotten son, it kind of sounds like only child, right? But clearly, there's, there's something else going on here. Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says Jesus was God's only begotten son. But we're looking in these verses that Israel, the nation, is his begotten son. David is a begotten son. Isaac is a begotten son. Like, what is the deal with this? See, we have to understand what this concept of the son of God means in order to understand how hugely important the story of Jesus' birth is. So, here are the two questions that we're trying to answer in this series. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? This is the question where I said, if I would ask you, you feel like you know that, but like actually if you started talking, you'd be like, actually, I don't really know what that means. Right, because God doesn't give birth, like he doesn't have children. So what does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? And also just as important, why does it matter? Why does it matter to understand this concept? 
But I feel like as we begin to unravel this, I'm hoping, like, like I kind of experienced as I was learning this, kind of this huge, mind-blowing moment. As I think about the concepts and the truth of this idea of Jesus, the Son of God, and what that is really, really about. So that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for today's message that you have given me. A tough, theologically rich, possibly complicated concept. I pray that you would help me, Lord, to teach well. I pray, God, that you would use me and that you'd open our hearts and minds to hear you today. In your name we pray. Amen. When you guys travel uh, for, like, long trips, um, how many of you guys bring a book along with you for the plane ride or the train ride? Okay. Okay. Some of you guys don't like to read, apparently. Um, okay. I'll be bringing books. I'm, I'm curious, what kind of books do you bring? You know, do you guys bring, like, lighthearted, easy books, like a novel or maybe some romance? You want some romance up in that plane, you know, because, like, that's easy to read. Um, or, or maybe you guys bring some, like, self-help, like, be a better person, a better you in 40 days or something like that. Like, what, what do you guys, what do you guys bring? How many of you guys go, like, on a plane, I don't want something crazy. I want something light, enjoyable. Like, essentially, I want to, like, watch a movie in this book, you know. And, like, I just want time to pass. How many of you guys go with light books, light books? Okay, okay. How many of you guys go with, like, something more complicated, something like, I've always wanted to read this, and this is finally my chance, so I'm going to read this book, and it's a little bit more complicated, a little bit more dense. How many of you guys read kind of hard books on the plane? Okay, okay. All right, the smart ones, the smart ones in the room. And the rest of you guys have kids, so you can't read on planes at all, right? Like, you can't, there's no point in bringing a book, you know? So, I am of the, uh, I am of the second group. The, uh, I like to bring very complicated theological Bible books with me when I ride on planes. But the reason is not because, like, I'm so smart and I'm all interested in all these things. I am, but it's like, this really helps you sleep on planes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't need no melatonin. Give me a book on theology, you know what I mean? No offense, no offense. I'm just kidding. But uh, I bring that up because this message came from, a lot of it came from a book that I read on a, a travel, on a plane, a couple months ago or uh, two months ago or whatever. I went to Vietnam with Elliot and my other brother-in-law and stuff like that. And I read this book. It's called The Sonship of Christ. The Sonship of Christ, which is like not a really interesting title. The subtitle, I don't think you can read it, but the subtitle is Exploring the Covenant Identity of God and Man. Right? It's like, what is that? So I read this book on the plane, and my first reactions to this book, I didn't finish it, but my first reactions were, this is super interesting for theology and Bible nerds, but no one is going to care about this. That was my first reaction. Like, this is something for, like, theology students, pastors, like, kind of like Bible people. Like, you will get a kick out of the stuff in this book, but the average person, you're going to read this and be like, what is the point of this? Why am I reading this? This is like, I guess, but why does this really matter? But as I began to read it, and as I began to unpack it and explore it, and start to think about it for myself, I began to realize that this idea of the sonship of Christ, by the way, this is written by Ty Gibson, if you guys are familiar with him. Uh, the idea of the sonship of Christ has a lot of relevance to our lives, actually. And I, what the, the thing that I noticed was, I feel like what is presented in this book, and what I'll be talking about over the next four weeks, is that... If I were to grasp this, or if we were to grasp this, this is a lot of what we are missing in our faith experience. 
Like when it comes to the Bible, if you are confused and you're like, yeah, I know this story and that story and that story and this verse, but you don't really have a sense of what the Bible is really about, this book explores the key concepts that bring it all together. And so when I read this, I was like, oh, I think if we got this, people would be like, yeah, I understand the Bible more. And so this is why, like, this made a really huge impression on me, where I thought it was worth spending four weeks to talk about some of the concepts in this book. But to begin this, this sermon series, we have to start at a different place, to lay the groundwork. To lay the groundwork of understanding what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, why it matters, and why the story of his birth is massively important for us, we have to begin with a whole different concept, and that idea is the concept, the idea of covenant. Covenant, another theological word that you're like, I've heard that, but I don't really know what that means. But let me tell, let me share a few quotes from the book where the author, Ty Gibson, talks about how significant this idea is in Scripture and in life. He says this on page 56. For its sheer conceptual worth, covenant is one of the most meaningful words in Scripture. Whoa, that's a big, big statement. It is the idea that most fully defines who God is and how God operates. You hear that? In other words, what he's saying here is if you don't understand covenant, you cannot understand God. This is who God really is. So if you don't get the idea of covenant, you will never really understand who God is. And this is so important because if you don't understand covenant and you've rejected God or you're in the process of rejecting God or in the past you've rejected God but you don't understand covenant, you have possibly rejected God with false information about who he is. And if you are at a place where you're like, I don't really know God, according to the author, you may not know God because you don't understand covenants. So this is big. This is huge for us if you are a believer or someone who wants to understand God and know God more. And then he says this about the Bible right afterwards. Covenant is the theological engine that drives the biblical story forward. Covenant is the theological engine that drives the biblical story forward. In other words, you can't understand God without understanding covenants, and you can't understand the Bible without understanding covenants. So the two key things about today's message is, number one, we have to understand how covenants drive the biblical story forward. That's my first, my first uh, thing that I'm trying to accomplish today. The second is help you and I to understand why covenant fully is, is, the, is the word, the concept that fully defines God. So we're going we're gonna to approach those two topics Today And this is going to set us in the right place to understand the Son of God concept and the birth of Jesus and why it's so crazy. All right, so let's begin. Covenant, the most basic understanding of biblical covenant. And I'm talking about biblical covenant because biblical covenant and earthly covenants and kind of the things that we do on this earth, they're a little bit different. The best way to understand covenant in the Bible is the word partnership. A covenant is a partnership. Okay? It is a, a partnership where two parties come together for a goal or a purpose. So in the Bible, you have God making covenants or God making partnerships with people. The first covenant or partnership we see is actually in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you the, the, the verse. God blessed them, this is 128, God blessed them and said to them, 
them is Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, God creates the world and creates everything. He creates man. He says, listen, I made all this stuff. I made a great world. It has everything you need, every food you need. It's perfect for you. Can you take care of it and make sure that this good world that I created stays good? Can you do that? Can you make sure that this good world that I created, can you move it along so that more goodness comes from it? This is our deal. This is our partnership. Shake hands, shake hands, right? They made a deal. They're in part. Adam and Eve in partnership with God for the goodness, to preserve the goodness and grow the goodness of the world God created. That's partnership. That's the first covenant we see in the Bible. Now, what's interesting, just to kind of whet your appetite, is in Luke chapter 3, when Luke talks about who Adam was, guess what he says about Adam? Adam was the son of God. Oh, what's that about? We're going to talk about that next week. So the story goes of the Bible that God makes this covenant with Adam and Eve, take care of my world, keep it good, keep growing the good and all that stuff. Turns out they're like, nah, I don't like this partnership. I don't like this deal. Right? You, uh, I want to do things my way. We want to do things our way. We want, to, uh, we want to determine what's good and bad. You said this world is good and these things are bad, but we want to disagree with that. We want to do our own thing. And so they, they sin. The covenant, the partnership is broken. They fail in the partnership. The covenant is broken. Sin enters the world and evil enters and all this bad stuff starts happening, right? And so what happens is it's not just Adam and Eve who enter into a broken covenant or broken partnership with God. The biblical worldview is that everyone has done that. Now everyone is living apart from, this bro- apart from this covenant. So then you have Cain, one of the first uh, children to murder his brother, Abel, right? And then you have all these other bad things happening and, and all these evil things happening. And so what God does in the story of Scripture is in every time he takes a small group, a relatively small group of people, he builds a covenant with them, a partnership with them for the purpose of blessing everyone else. So he says in in, in those times, he will select one person, he enters into partnership with them, and that partnership, that relationship will be the basis of blessing and leading all other people into a covenant or partnership with him. And so you see in Scripture, in the Old Testament, four covenants beyond Adam and Eve, four covenants. The four covenants are Noah, Abraham, Israel, and David. These are the four key covenants in Scripture. And so what happens uh, after everyone gets bad and evil reigns through this earth, God brings the flood and he makes a covenant with Noah. And he says, listen, from you, I'm going to rebuild this world and I will never destroy this world again. And the symbol of that is a rainbow, right? And I'm going to, this is a Noah covenant. Years down the line, Abraham comes along. God selects Abraham and he makes a covenant or a partnership with Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless everyone else. And then so that Abraham is an individual that God enters into covenant with. And the story goes is that, that people grow and then they come back, they go to Egypt and then they do really well in Egypt and they get really big and they get enslaved. So God sends Moses, he delivers them out of Egypt and he takes this massive people to Mount Sinai and that's where we get the third covenant where God brings the 10 commandments and said, hey, people of Israel, let's go into covenant. Let's get into a partnership. You follow these Ten Commandments, these rules, I will bless you. Like, that's the arrangement. That's the partnership. And then this people becomes a nation. And then to King David, they're the greatest king of Israel, he makes a covenant and a partnership. 
So this is what we see throughout the Old Testament. This is why covenant drives the story of the Bible. God is consistently, constantly making covenants with people. Again, for the purpose of blessing everyone else to lead all other people in broken relationships back into covenant with God. This is why when, when God goes into covenant with Abraham, this is what he says. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth, not just you, not just your friends, not your family, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Unfortunately, God sets these covenants up, these four covenants throughout the Old Testament, but every single one, the people fail. They all break the covenant, and they break the partnership, and they fail in the partnership. In every single one of those covenants, they start worshiping idols. They start worshiping other gods. They introduce evil and immorality, injustice and corruption into their nation, into their people. And they fail and fail and fail and fail. And at the end of it, they get conquered and are taken into exile. And the people of Israel at this time are like, what's going to happen What's going to happen now? But in those dark times, these messages start popping up from different prophets of a new covenant on the horizon. And so you get these messages like the ones we see in Isaiah chapter 42. Listen to what he, what he says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the right hand and guard and guard you, and I will give you, and I will give you to my people, Israel, as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. And so in this dark time of exile, these, and, and before the exile, these messages are coming up that there is another covenant coming and another person coming who will bring forth a new covenant. And so you can see, as you look from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, how covenant is the key concepts that moves the Bible forward. That it is through covenants that God continues to interact with his people until we get to the New Testament. This is why the author says that it is the engine that drives the biblical story forward. So if you don't understand covenants, then you don't understand why God does what he does. And you don't understand why he did what he did in these situations. So that was the first thing that I wanted to accomplish. I want you to see how the idea of covenants drive the Bible forward. But the question we have to ask, and it always matters to me, is why does this matter? Why does it matter that these, these are, there are covenants in the Bible and God is like a God of covenants? What, is, what does that mean? Why does that even matter to all of us? And to answer that question, I'm going to ask you an odd question that maybe you've never asked yourself. A really simple question, but here's the question. How do you know God is love? All right, another very famous verse from the same author who wrote John 3.16. He also wrote, God is love. How do you know that? Now, maybe you are like, well, John says it. I believe in the words of Scripture. God is love. He's declared it, so I believe it. Amen. Right? I applaud you for your faith. That's awesome. God is love because the Bible says God is love. But on a daily basis, in your practical life, in your real life, how do you know God is love? How do you know God is a loving God? I would argue that most of us are convinced that God loves us because of good things that happen to us. 
I know God is love because he takes care of me. And I have this and I have that. And I got the grade and I got the girl or I got the guy. I got the job. I got the promotion. Whatever, right? Like all these, I got the parking spot, right? That's how I know God loves me. We, 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 whether we like to admit it or not, a lot of us are convinced of God's love for us because of the things he's done for us that we experience on a daily or weekly or annual basis. But what about when bad things happen? What about when not so great things happen and you don't get those things and those are the times and that is the reason why in those seasons, that's when people are questioning God, whether he is love, whether he exists. Because so much of our understanding of God is love is based on these experiences that I've had and these things that he's given to me. How do you know God is love? I would argue that better than your personal experiences and the personal blessings of your daily life and all the little things, all the little good things that happen to you, a better argument or a better evidence for the fact that God is love is looking at God's covenantal faithfulness throughout Scripture. God is love because he is a God who enters into covenants and he never, ever fails in those covenants. God is a God of love because he never breaks his commitment to the people he loves, even though they have broken every commitment. He, has made, he is a God of love because he has made promises over thousands and thousands of years to broken and sinful humanity, and he's never, ever given up on them. I feel like that's a better piece of evidence for why God is love than I got a good grade on my test this past week. God is love. Amen. And you know what? That's a blessing. And I'm not saying you should discount that blessing. But the way we know, I would argue that the way we know God is love is by looking at God's track record in covenant throughout the ages. And he's never failed and never given up on us once. Broken covenant after broken covenant, broken deal after broken deal, God never abandoned his people. Sounds a lot like us. Broken deal, broken commitments, broken decisions that I've made, that I've made promises to God that I failed in, yet he has never abandoned me. This is how we know God is love. And when we see, say things and hear things in church like God will never leave you or forsake you, how do you know that is true? How do you know that God will never leave you or abandon you or forsake you? Because he's never, ever done that in the history of this universe. Throughout the ages, through every people, through people better than you and worse than you, he's never abandoned them. That's why you can believe he will never abandon you today. Not because you feel good, because you feel something. Not because you come to church, listen to amazing praise, and your heart is swelled and filling with great emotions. That's not why God will never leave you. That's not why you can have confidence that he'll never leave you. It's because he's never failed. And he's never given up, and he's never abandoned his people that he loves. And that's what we see in covenants from Adam to Noah to, to Israel, Abraham, David, all of that. You know, what we got to understand and what covenant reveals about God is that relationship is God's primary method to bring about change. This is really key. Relationship, because that's what a covenant is. At the end of the day, covenant is simply a relationship. 
Relationship is God's primary method to bring about change. So what does this mean? If you want God to change you by zapping you into a different person, that doesn't happen really. It happens sometimes, it's rare, but God's preferred method of change is relationship. If you want to break a habit or an addiction, you can pray, God, just take it away from me, and I get why we pray that. But God's primary method of change is through relationship. And this is so special because if you look at history and other civilizations and mythology, this is not true of all gods. This is not true of how people viewed the gods in the ancient times. They didn't change things through love and relationship. They changed things through coercion and oppression. And you know what the gods loved to do in ancient times? They loved to trick people and deceive people and manipulate people. But God says, no, 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 I'm not going to bring about change in the nation and the world through deceit and and manipulation. And I'm not going to change this world. I'm not going to bring peace to this world through oppression and coercion. No, I'm going to do it through relationships. I'm going to do it through honesty and trust and love. That's how I'm going to change this world. That's how I'm going to change the trajectory of this planet is through relationship, through covenants. So this is why we can see how this is so key about how God is a God of covenants. God is love. God is love because God is a God of covenantal or relational faithfulness. This is important, right? This shows us that God is someone we can trust in and believe in, not just out of blind faith, not just because we, we, we are in need, just because we need a crutch to, to lean on to get through our everyday. No, we can know that God is a God of love because he's a God of covenantal faithfulness. Just look at how God describes his own covenants, right? When, when God talks about the covenants he's making, look at these verses and look at the, the emotion, the feeling, the concepts and ideas attached to the idea of covenants. Isaiah chapter 54. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What's connected to covenant? Next verse, Isaiah 55. Come to me with your eyes wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. The covenants that God makes with his people, it's about that. His unfailing, his steadfast, and his sure love that will never fail. That is why God is a God of love. Because God is a God of covenantal faithfulness. And that's why the author, Ty Gibson, makes such great claims about this idea of covenant. Because this is connected directly to his heart and his character and the fact that he is a God of love. He says this. To say that God is a God of covenant is to say that God is relationally faithful to all others above and before himself at any and all cost to himself. To say that God is a God of covenant is to say that he is relationally faithful at all costs, no matter the cost to himself. This is the groundwork to understand the story of the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was not some random moment, but a culmination and a climax of the covenants all throughout the Old Testament. From Adam to Noah to Abraham, 
David, all these broken covenants, broken, 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 and then finally the birth of the one, the symbol of the new covenant who will not fail. It's not just a moment in history. It's not just some origin story of a personal savior, which is amazing, right? To, to hear the origin stories of our personal savior is beautiful and amazing, but it is beautiful and amazing, but also it is so much bigger than that. The son of God, the only begotten son, connected to the idea of covenants all throughout the Old Testament, give us confidence that God truly is who he says he is when he says, I am love. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. God is a God of covenantal, relational faithfulness. And he wants to transform us through a relationship, through time with one another, through trust between each other, through learning and speaking and growing together. That's how he wants to change us, through those relationships. And so as we understand the basis of covenant and we understand how God has moved through covenants throughout the Bible into the New Testament, we're ready to explore the idea of what does the Son of God have to do with that? What does the, the title of the only begotten Son, what does the title of Son of God have to do with the idea and the basis of these four covenants? These broken covenants. And in the New Testament, when Jesus is born, he brings in the final saga of the story between God and humanity. The new covenant. But it's also the final covenant. That's what we're going to explore next week. And we're going to look, how, how, look at how all four covenants lead up to Jesus. And how they all culminate in the birth of this person. Jesus, the Son of God. So I hope you guys join us next week. It's going to get crazy. It's going to get crazy, guys. As, I, as, I say, as we look through these, these stories and these verses, we're going to see it all get tied together. And it's gonna, I think it's going to blow our minds. And then the third message, when we're going to talk about the government. Remember I mentioned that in the very beginning? That's the one I'm most excited about. That might be third or might be fourth. I'm not sure. I got to like ask God. God needs to tell me if it's three or four. But I hope you guys join us. Or if you're not here next week, join us, for, join us online for part two. Because I think it's going to be so powerful. It's going to be awesome. And it's going to change the way we see who God is and the way we interact with this season in this, of this year and the story of Jesus' birth. I think God's got, got something planned for us. So I want to invite you guys back. Come back next week for part two. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's really easy, God, to limit you to small, tiny details. And you, got it. And you know, like, the, the, there's beauty in all the details of Scripture and, and the details of your interactions and the spiritual nuggets that we can pull from the stories. Like, that's so beautiful and that's so wonderful. But God, we need a moment, Father, to step back and just be blown away and be in awe and in wonder of your interactions and the story that you have with humanity, broken and sinful humanity. Lord, today we, we've just been scratching the surface trying to understand this, this MO that you have, this MO, this, this operative principle that you call, that we see in Scripture called covenants. And as though it can be a, although it can be a theologically confusing concept, 
I pray that we may all walk away at this moment just understanding that because you are a God of covenant, we can have confidence in your everlasting, unfailing love. You've never failed before. And your love will never fail us now. So thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.